0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Today we're back. We're finally back. It's happening. We're in our new place. But this is not actually, I don't think this will be where I uh, do my podcasting long term, but because everything is still in boxes, we had to work with what we got, right? And today, just like every other day on Ask Katie Anything, we have 10 questions. I know sometimes we actually do have a couple extras, but today we have 10 and thank you all for sending them in. I know you sent them in last week, but I just wanted to hold with them because I thought I'd be able to film and record last week, but we were we had no furniture. It just was delayed. So I had to put it off, but I saved them and I have picked them and I've added in. If you didn't know, if you leave a comment below a question, saying, you know, an add on to this, I will add it in and answer it as well. So if a comment or a question is very similar to the one that you would want to ask, you can just ask it below. And that works just as well. And if you're also wondering where in the world, Katie, do you get these questions? I ask for them every Sunday. I think it's every Sunday morning over on my YouTube channel for my podcast which is called opinions that don't matter and you go into the community tab and you ask them there and I post them and I've heard from a lot of you that if you're in there quickly after I've posted and asked them like I said it's Sunday mornings then you know you're more likely to get enough thumbs ups because I pick the ones with the most thumbs ups for all eight questions and the last two are just totally random okay enough about that let's get into those questions now question number one says hi Katie happy Thursday happy Thursday My therapist told me that they would be surprised if I actually committed suicide when I'd finally gotten the courage to tell them about my suicidal thoughts in session. Their reasoning was that my age, I'm 24, and the fact that I haven't experienced a big trauma meant that I would not go through with it. What? In some ways, I can understand this, but I felt really hurt and dismissed when they said this to me. Of course you did. Am I being irrational? I feel like they just think my struggles are related to my age and where I'm at developmentally, being in that transition phase as a young adult. I want, to, um, I want them to take me seriously as my suicidal thoughts are making me miserable. But I don't want them to think that I'm being needy and just want their attention. Obviously, that's not at all what this is. Since in their view, I'm going through a normal phase of life that I should, quote unquote, should be able to handle. That's so rude. This is really putting me off um, in therapy in general. I feel like they don't see me and just keep me um, as a client to indulge me, but don't think anything is actually wrong. Hope this makes sense and sorry it's so long. Thanks for everything you do, Katie. Of course. Okay. Obviously this had a lot of thumbs up, a lot of comments. Um pretty much saying what I have to say about this. That is is really disrespectful and of course you feel terrible. It's really invalidating. And the one thing that I I mean there's a lot of, a lot of things that are amazing about therapy, but one of the main things that I find personally beneficial is just the support and validation, right? There's no judgment in therapy, it's more a place for you to talk about what's going on, and then have someone hear you seek to understand and validate your experience. That's what it's all about. And this therapist isn't doing any of this, they're terrible. And I would honestly encourage you to find someone who's maybe a better fit. Um, And someone did leave a comment that I also want to talk about here, because I thought it was a really great comment. And essentially, a lot of people said this too, though, but essentially, what their thoughts were, was that a lot of therapists and mental health professionals as a whole, are not well trained in how to deal with suicidal thoughts. And so they either a overreact or b, as in the case of this, they underreact. And I do have to agree. And I think the reason not that you all care about this, but behind the scenes in therapy in uh, training and schooling and all of this The biggest thing that they spend time on and the biggest emphasis, at least in my, when I went to school, which was 2009, 2010, is in the legal and ethical implications or things that we're bound to as therapists. Meaning that if you are a threat to yourself or others, meaning a 5150, right? If you're in danger to self or others, then as a therapist, I can force you into a 72 hour psychiatric hold, which is otherwise known as a 5150. They talk about that and the importance of that and how to know when to do that. And they drill you with all of these. And then there's like, not to get into the nitty gritty, but then there's like Terasoff, which is this uh, case. It's I don't know if they call them like case studies, but it's like a case that happened where a woman was killed and the therapist knew that the person was going to go and try to kill them. And it's essentially our duty to warn. So we have the ability if we know who the intended target is, and our patient has told us, we legally can go warn that person to the best of our ability. We're not held responsible, but we should, you know, try to warn or at least call the police in the area, things like that. And they spend a ton of time drilling this stuff into our head. And there's more than just, you know, those like the 5150s and duty to warn and duty to protect those things. But they spend a lot of time drilling that into us And what I essentially call the CYA of schooling, which is the cover your ass where it's like, hey, you could lose your license or, you know, have other implications to your career and your ability to practice if you don't pay attention to these things. And in that and the reason that I brought that up is because in that forcefulness of like going through that and through that over and over and having this huge component of it in our even in our licensing exam, they can stir up a lot of fear and mental health professionals with regard to suicide and suicidal thoughts, because we could be held responsible if we don't take proper precautions to try to protect our patients, okay? Now, I think that accounts for the overreaction, which I truly find to be way, 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 way more common than the underreaction, which is what we're seeing here. I honestly don't understand why this Therapist acted in this way but I just wanted to describe the overreaction because I know a lot of you have reached out over the years and told me that that is how your therapist or psychologist has you know responded to you talking about suicide and I think that that's wise it's the cover your ass component of things and them worrying that if they don't take enough precautions then they'll be in trouble so on this front I honestly feel like the, I don't I, I I cannot wrap my head around why a therapist would say this other than the fact that maybe, maybe they're thinking that this will help you f- not be so scared of it or I, I I don't I struggle to find a way that this is actually therapeutic. And that's why my my actual recommendation, my advice with regard to this is to find a better therapist. No therapist should tell you that you're just in this like transition phase of life that you quote unquote should be able to handle. That isn't the message that you should be receiving. Now, I have said to patients in the past where I'm like, how much of this do we think is your eating disorder? And how much of it do we think is just you being a 13 year old kid? And, but I let them parse it out. If they're like, all of it is my eating disorder or all of it is me being a teenager, you know, that's fine. But I'm not going to tell them what it is because I'm not them. That... (laughs) I just I, this really pisses me off to be honest. And to tell your patient who's already suicidal that you'd be surprised if they actually took their own life is just rude and stupid and just completely ignorant. And so you have every right to feel the way you feel. I am so sorry that they're making you feel, you know, less validated and you're already feeling miserable because you're suicidal thoughts. So all in all, I would look for another therapist if you have that capability. Or if you don't, because I know in a lot of scenarios, especially those in the UK and in Canada, you've all told me that if you leave one therapist, you can't just like go find another unless you're paying private. You have to like get back in line and you could have to wait like another year and a half to see someone. So if that's the situation that we're in, it is fair and completely okay to come back to your therapist and say, you know, And you could write this down so you can read from it or email it if they allow. But you could say something to the effect of, you know, last week or last month or whatever. When I told you that I was struggling with suicidal thoughts, I really got the impression that you think everybody my age has these or that I'm going through a tough time or I should be able to handle this. And that was really invalidating. It felt very dismissive when I don't like having these thoughts, and they're making me miserable. Can we keep talking about this? That would be how I would approach it. Now, I know a lot of you are going to tell me like that makes me super uncomfortable. I don't think I'm able to, you know, vocalize that again, write it down practice and read from it or email it. But if you aren't able to find a better fit, or someone who's honestly better at their job, that would be the next best thing. Because let's, you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and think that they just didn't realize what they're saying therapists are people too right they can have off days they can say things that they don't mean or misinterpret things we're not perfect and so maybe they were having an off day or off time and when we say that they're like oh my god i am so sorry you know like a normal therapist human person should be but we can give them that opportunity if we talk to them about it so those are my thoughts again i'm so sorry this happened to you you have every right to feel how you feel And I also, just as an FYI, have a ton of videos about creating a suicide safety plan and putting in place some tools and coping skills and ways to better manage. If you just look up on YouTube, Katie Morton Suicide, you'll be able to find those. Otherwise, I know they don't come up because actually they might be better now. I know YouTube's been working with me a lot to help help out with those types of videos. But otherwise, I know they used to not always come up because when we look up that type of content, it tries to like suppress things and be like, call the hotline. And I'm like, no, it's just educational information. So anyway, check those out too. that. Uh, hopefully it'll be another helpful resource and to remind you that you're not alone, that it can get better. And that suicidal thoughts can go away with the right support. Okay, let's move on to question number two. And that is, Hi, Katie, how can I relax more during a session? I am so nervous every single time because of those nerves. I answer all questions with, I don't know. Oh my God, I've had so many patients do that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. This feels like failure. It's not. Don't worry. Only when I get home, do I know what I should have answered. And it makes me even more nervous the next time. Also too nervous to tell her how nervous I am. Ha ha ha. Oh my God. So relatable. Because she'll probably ask why and I don't know. Can you help? Greetings from Holland. Now, there's another one at the end, there's a there was a question in the comments that I'll get to but I want to answer this first. So during session, sometimes it helps to and just like I mentioned in the first one is to write things down or email them or text them in between sessions or before or after or whatever. And if you're able to tell them about that in session to ask for permission. Now, It's normal when we're first starting with a therapist for, you know, I don't know, I'd give it even a month or two for us to not feel quite as anxious. Now, if we're struggling with social anxiety, it may take us a little bit longer, but I would encourage you to watch some of my videos uh, on social anxiety and just on soothing your system. I even talk about like a full body shake for that, uh, for stress, anxiety. Trying out as many of those techniques as you can so that when you're in session, you can open up a little bit and at least tell them that you're having a hard time. Because like the person who asked the question says, I can't even, I'm too nervous to even tell them how nervous I am. So it, either there's tell go into session and try to figure it out, read from a paper about it, you're nervous and you want to figure this out, why you feel so anxious or email text in between or go into session and just ask for permission to email and text in between. Now that will, most likely roll around into you saying that you're just too anxious or nervous in session, that you just don't get anything out, which I think they would completely understand and be like, that's true, because they're experiencing it with you. But we're gonna have to somehow either find a way to contact them when we feel okay, or start pushing ourselves to stop to talk more in session. And I really think a big key to this if let's say, let's say they don't have email or text and we just can't seem to get that out and we can't ask for permission. You're going to have to start journaling. I know a J-bomb was dropped and I know a lot of you probably saw it coming. But journaling things out and then either A, giving it to your therapist, because I've had a lot of patients that leave me with their journal for the week. They're like, I just need you to catch up. I couldn't talk about this stuff like the last five pages or whatever, although paper clip the pages they want me to read. You can leave it with them or you can read from it directly when you're in session. Now, I know that that doesn't always take the nerves out of it, but sometimes we can just push through if we just, we're just reading just reading from this, right? It can be harder to put the words together when we feel nervous. But if we already have the words put together, a lot of times we can push through and read from it. So that's really my advice. I think through time you will relax more. Again, if you're not, we, that's something we, we're we going to have to bring up in session, even if it's just reading is like, Hey, I'm feeling so nervous. But if this has been going on another thought, my head just went to is that if we have been feeling nervous, and let's say we've been seeing this therapist for like a year, maybe let's be curious about that. And maybe it's just not a good fit. You know, it's possible. Sometimes I've heard from a lot of you over the years that the environment meaning the therapist's office or like the waiting room or the way they have to park at their office or whatever it is, is just anxiety producing. Like I had to move offices, this is like years ago. One of my first offices was in Westwood, California, which is like a super busy, crazy place over by UCLA. And it's really close to 405, so traffic is a nightmare. And a lot of my patients, when I moved into that office, Hated it. They were like, oh my God, the parking is so difficult in the traffic and blah, blah, blah. Because I'd come from a place that was like had its own parking lot and everything. And so I only stayed there for a couple of months. It was kind of interim until I found my last office, which had parking and wasn't that stressful. So there can be things like that that might be fighting against you or working against you, making you more anxious by the time you show up that you're like panicked that you're not going to get there on time and you're already overwhelmed, right? I've heard from a lot of you that sometimes just the stress of going to therapy will cause you to dissociate before you even get there. So consider those things as well because it's not always just the relationship with the therapist. It can be their office and the parking situation, the traffic situation. Let's just be curious about that because we have to be open to the thought that maybe it's not a good fit or maybe we would experience this with anyone and then we'll go back to those first kind of ideas that I offered where it's like writing it down seeing if you can email or text reading from it directly journaling and dropping that off like any other way that you can think to get that message out that can help and if it makes you super anxious just sitting waiting for your session some of my patients and viewers have told me that just bringing a support person, if, if someone knows you're going to therapy, is can that friend come and sit in the waiting room with you? Like sometimes that's soothing. Sometimes that helps. And then, you know, come back and be there when you get out. They could do that. And, you know, sometimes we just have to ask for that support. But hopefully that helps you figure it out because there's a lot of different reasons this could be happening and a lot of different ways that we can overcome it. Now, the comment at the bottom of this question said, Uh, Oh, it says, Katie said, it's very common to feel nervous and uncomfortable for the first few sessions with your therapist. But how about if you've been with the same therapist for four years and you still can't shake that anxious feeling and awkwardness? What should I do in this case? And why do I feel like this? That I kind of answered that right there before was just like being curious about what it is and why, because four years is a long time and they clearly have been consistent and shown up for you. So what's holding you back? Is it their office? Is it them? Is it the place? Is it the way you get there? Be curious about it. Think about it. Do you feel nervous with everybody no matter what? Is it because they ask a lot of questions? Like be dig into your your thoughts about therapy, what you tell yourself, what the what it feels like. Let's just be a detective. Let's try to figure this out. Because It could be social anxiety. It could be, you know, the thought of talking to a stranger, but they're not a stranger. It's been four years. You know, what's coming up for me? Is somebody, do I have trouble opening up to anybody? Do I feel nervous about a lot of people and awkward in public? Like, let's talk about this. Think about this. And then if we have some answers, let's say in all of that thinking, we realize, hey, The parking situation around the office stresses me out. And I find that I actually do feel pretty awkward in any situation where someone asks me things about myself, whatever information we gather. okay, so let's say those are two things we learned. We bring that into therapy and we mention it and we say, hey, you know, I always feel super anxious and awkward here. And I was thinking about it. And here's what I learned. We tell them those things and then they'll know what to work on next. That gives us information. I know a lot of times we think, well, this isn't going well because this I don't feel super comfortable and I'm not spilling my guts and I'm not getting all these tools and resources. But that's not all that's not like the only way to start feeling better. That's not all that therapy is about. Sometimes therapy is about just what comes up for us within the process of therapy, meaning what's triggered inside of us? What are we struggling with? like therapy being hard, even just talking about that is helpful because usually what comes up in therapy comes up in other parts of our life. And we just haven't acknowledged it there yet, or we've been ignoring it or stuffing it down or any number of things. So anyway, I could talk about that forever, but I hope that that helps. And let's move on to question number three. And that says, hi, Katie, my therapist and I are working on attachment at the moment. And it's the hardest thing that I've had to do. Almost everybody feels that way. So don't worry. Part of me wants her close and wants her attention and warmth all the time and is extremely jealous of her other clients and children. And another part of me wants to leave because I'm sure that I'll end up getting hurt somehow. Sounds maybe a little BPD ish borderline personality disorder. My problem right now is kind of weird. My therapist thinks that something horrible happened to me as a child and keeps asking things like, I wonder what happened to your body when you were little. And the thing is, I was never physically or sexually abused, Katie. But the fact that she thinks I was gives me a weird kind of comfort. Like somebody finally cares about me. She worries about me, Katie. And I'm terrified because she thinks I was abused and I wasn't. I can't tell her I wasn't because she'll no longer care about me as much. Oh, that's an interesting belief system we've got there. And I kind of play along with her just to get her warm response and her caring tone of voice. I would never lie to her and say that something happened to me that never did. But I feel like I'm a bad person because I'm letting her believe that something that drastic happened to me just to feel special and cared for. What should I do, Katie? I just want to be cared for so badly. And I almost wish something awful like sexual abuse had happened to me so that I could feel like I matter and I deserve warmth and care. I feel so trapped and scared. Okay, Tons of questions on the end of this one and a lot to unpack here. Now that my first thought on this was, first of all, it sounds a lot like borderline personality disorder. I don't know if you've been diagnosed and I'm not diagnosing you, but that's something you might want to bring up with her and that you feel that need to like feel close, but then push away and that push pull of attachment and fear of abandonment that comes with BPD, you know, it might be good to bring that up and like let let her figure that out with you and walk you through that. So there's that. Then there's the second part where attachment issues usually stem out of what I would call either emotional abuse, which is still abuse, or some kind of neglect, which is still abuse, or potentially, like you said, no sexual abuse, no physical abuse. So I'm, but those also, but there's usually something that has happened to us. Now, when I say something's happened to us, often we think it's something added to our life, meaning someone hit us, someone sexually abused us, we were in an accident, we moved a lot as a kid, there could be a lot of different things that we can think there were these like challenges and changes and things that we saw that happened that caused us to struggle with attachment. But there can also be a lot of things that were not there, the removal of important things like support, care, love, affection, validation, whatever, those things weren't there, and it can cause us the same kinds of issues. So I want you to just be curious about that, because I I wonder if this attachment comes out of that. Now, I don't know, that's not the case with everybody. Again, everybody's different. Some of us had patient or had parents who were like good on paper, right? I've talked about that. And they were just emotionally absent, which again, is abuse, it's emotional abuse, it's neglect. But it might be hard for us to acknowledge that and call it for what it is because we're like well you know my mom I took me to private school we had like a nice house and like they fed me and I had tutors and like everything was taken care of I got to play sports like nothing was wrong yes the the lack of love and empathy and support that we need to get from a parent and the compassion and understanding that wasn't there and that's just that's honestly even bigger than those good on paper things like that's more important than having a nice house or going to a good school or you know whatever so that's my first chunk of thought about this now the second is that what you're experiencing and what you're doing is very very normal if we're struggling with attachment or borderline personality disorder it's very normal to want our therapist to care now again going back to kind of what I said in question number two is like It's really helpful just to talk with your therapist about what is coming up for you in therapy, because this is coming up for you, right? That we really want her to be there and we want her to worry and and all of that stuff. And so it's still just as beneficial to talk about that. I know it's really uncomfortable. Let's not pretend this is easy to bring up. But I do think that talking about this will help uncover where it's coming from and letting her know like, hey, nothing happened to me like that. But I don't know if maybe my mom just or mom or dad or whoever your primary caregiver was. I don't know if maybe they just weren't there for me in the way I wanted. Maybe they traveled a lot or maybe you had a multiple nannies or I don't know. Right. Let's be curious about it, but bring it up. I know you want to shame yourself and guilt yourself and you feel embarrassed about this. It's very normal. It's very common. Any therapist worth their salt is going to see this for what it is, that it's, you know, you're working on attachment. She already is aware. Letting her know about this process will be helpful. And it will not only help you kind of relieve yourself of this guilt that you're like letting her think something happened, but it will also deepen that relationship and help you get the most out of therapy. So please just do it. Like one, two, three, do it. Don't think about it too much. Don't worry about, you know, how you say it, just get it out. And then your therapist will help you process it. Because again, she already knows about the attachment, it's going to be okay. Now a comment on this says, in addition, I think an important question is how to be able to form safe relationships, whether it's friendships or a relationship. Now, when we have something like borderline personality disorder or attachment issues or both, and one of the comments below this question is a good one. It says, In addition, I think an important question is how to be able to form safe relationships, whether it's friendships or a relationship. Now, when we're dealing with something like attachment or borderline personality disorder or both, we can struggle with this. We can struggle with splitting, meaning we think that people are all good or all bad. So we when we meet someone we kind of almost not love bomb them because i know it's a narcissistic thing but we can a lot of times think they're just amazing everything about them is perfect and i love them and then they do something inadvertently often that we are worried means they're going to leave or we find that thing very hurtful and then we're like they're all bad and we try to like abort mission cut off from them remove ourselves from them and so It can be really difficult for us to engage in safe relationships when we don't have any tools. Now, this does not mean, I know there's a lot of chatter online and stuff about like, and I've even said this in some ways, like you can't love someone else if you don't first love yourself. I don't fully think we can't have a healthy relationship if we haven't completely worked on ourselves. We're all works in progress. Let's give ourselves a little bit of compassion, right? We just have to have some tools, I, that's why I always talk about the importance when we're dealing with attachment or BPD or honestly, all anybody, all of us can benefit from dialectical behavior therapy or DBT because it gives us tools. It gives us resources and things that we can use when we maybe want to cut off from them, push them away or when we want to get overly attached and overshare. A lot of stuff like that is gonna happen in our life and we're gonna need to find ways to manage those urges. We all have them. Just those of us with BPD and other attachment issues tend to have them in like more often and they're stronger urges, right? So having those tools and resources that are offered through DBT, you can even pick up um, in my Amazon shop, which is always linked in the description of all my videos. You can go through that and I have a DBT worksheet book that I recommend that I use a lot. It's Marsha Linehan, the, the founder and creator of DBT. And then also it's the McKay and I forget the other guy's name, but it's their workbook that explains it all. No hate on Marsha Linehan or anything. I just really love the way that they describe all of the different tools and things that DBT offers in that workbook. And so pick it up. You know, you can start working on your own. It's best to do it with a therapist, but I've selected that workbook in my Amazon shop because I think it is something you can do on your own. And then that worksheet booklet is mainly, I mean, it's a resource for therapists, but it's like an add-on to that workbook because it has other tools and techniques and things that you can do and you can tear them out and write in them and stuff like that. And I just really like it. So that's how we form safe relationships. We need to have some resources and tools so that we don't engage in this like push pull splitting behavior or act on our impulses. Then it can be really hard if we don't have any other way to cope. Now, another comment was, hey, Katie, could you also address those of us who quote unquote are capable of lying to get the desired reaction? So that means, you know, if in this case of this question where we would like lie to our therapist and let them think or even say that we were abused so that we did get that attention. And that can be, unfortunately, another side effect of, of borderline personality disorder or attachment issues. And the truth about that kind of stuff, and this is going to, again, we need the tools. We need ways to manage that impulse. And I, I would, again, enact that like three, two, one, do it, where you rip off the band-aid and you tell them you lied. People lie. I know that we hold a lot of guilt and shame about that. And we think, oh, I've told too many now I can't get out. There's this old song and got to love my mom, I guess, because I used to listen to these tapes at night. They're like little kid uh, rhymes. And one of them was about lying. And it talked about how it's like, it seems like it's just a small thing. And it's like a little drop in the bucket. But before you know it, you're like up to your eyebrows and drowning in it. And I always think of that, that like, it doesn't, All it takes is to pour out that bucket, like just tell them, hey, I lied. I I did it because of this. And the reason behind it is actually what's important in therapy. My patients lie to me all the time. You guys do not think that like I've never been lied to and everybody's perfect and always tells me the truth. Oh, please. People lie in therapy. That's just what they do. It's hard to be honest. And we all have our own defense mechanisms. And if we're struggling with attachment or any kind of BPD like symptoms, we're going to do whatever we can. To within our what what within our BPD mind or our attachment based mind that we think will keep the therapist with us forever, and we do things and therapists know that that's happening. So come clean, do three, two, one, t- say it or write it down, read it, just do it, get it out there. It's okay. Once we get that out there, we can talk about why that happened and the reasoning behind it and how those urges and impulses that made this happen in therapy probably also affect your regular life. And then what can we do to change that, right? What resources and tools do we need? Maybe we need some more, I don't know, like emotion regulation tools, probably and some interpersonal effectiveness, if we're talking DBT specifically. But there are some things that you can learn about, find some resources you can get so that we lie less and have more healthy, honest, hopefully happy and loving relationships. Okay, and then one more, Someone said, as an add on, does it make a difference in treatment if a client has gone through sexual abuse without remembering it, or if the client was not sexually abused but still shows symptoms of sexual abuse? Because if something happened but the memories are repressed, the therapist cannot act as if the client was actually abused. How do therapists handle such cases properly? We let the client lead. When you have someone in your practice, or like a patient that you're seeing, and we're not sure, Of abuse but all of it's kind of like red flags right we can we can have like all these little red flags as a therapist where we're like oh for instance a lot of times even with diagnoses we do this where i'm like okay that's kind of a symptom of depression Hmm." and i'm like well that's kind of more anxiety driven hmm and then they start they continue And I'm tracking them. I'm looking for patterns of behavior. I see patients for quite a while before I diagnose them, unless insurance pushes you to do it quickly because they're kind of assholes like that. But usually, you know, you get to take your time, you get to know them, and then you you talk about it and you give a diagnosis so it's the same when it comes to thinking that a patient is sexually abused even if they know it a lot of my patients won't tell me for a long time and they'll do like those doorknob confessions when they're about to leave session they're like by the way this horrible thing happened to me for like six years talk about next time or never bye and they leave right it can be uncomfortable to even talk about that and so the way that we handle them is just by asking lots of questions being non-judgmental whole like the other word that I was gonna say holding this space, but it really just means validating, communicating, uh, being compassionate toward our patients. We just hold that space so they can tell us whatever they feel comfortable telling. And what's gonna come out is gonna come out. We're still gonna treat the symptoms. We're still going to offer some resources and tools and things that can help them better manage what's coming up for them. And whether or not they remember it or the memories are even there, right? A lot of times like Alexa, My good friend and trauma specialist told me that because we can be in fight, flight, freeze or dissociation, right? Sometimes those memories aren't even formed. So we can't even like actually dig them out and recall them. So maybe it's not even there, but it doesn't actually matter. What matters is how it's affecting you. And that's what therapy, that's what our goal is, is to identify the symptoms that are bothering you most and help you best fix them and have other tools and resources so that you can overcome it. So that, that will be how I deal with that. Now let's move on to question number four. And that question says, Hey, Katie, how do, you, how do you stop self-harming when self-harming is the only thing that keeps me visible? That's interesting language. As a child, I was always left alone, oh, neglected, and nobody took care of me. I was in a lot of emotional pain, but nobody noticed or cared, so I figured my suffering must not be real. I must be making it up. I'm in therapy now, and the self-harm makes me feel like my pain is valid, like I am valid. If it's a day before my next therapy session and I haven't self-harmed all week, I'll start to get anxious because I need to do it so that I won't be invisible in therapy tomorrow. How can I get over this? How can I stop hurting myself? I don't ever think I'll feel worthy or valid unless I'm in crisis and unless I'm visibly hurt. This is so such a great question and so common. I've, I've talked about this over the years, but a lot of my patients who struggle with self-injury have talked about that need to express physically what we feel emotionally and how self-injuring is that outlet. Now, let's let go of the, I don't know, the guilt or the counting of days or whatever about self-injury. Let's just let go of that. Sometimes it's important, or at least I do this a lot with my patients uh, when it's behavioral modification, meaning we we don't want to self-injure. We're going to try to modify that behavior, change that behavior, Sometimes it's good to just let it go. So for this week, fucking forget about it. I don't care. self injury or not, whatever. That's not what we're here about. What we're here for is to figure out how or what could make you feel seen and valid. That's not self-injury. What are things that we're looking for? Has there ever been a time in your life when you felt seen by someone else or validated? Has your therapist ever done that? What did that look like? What did that entail? How did they express that to you? Or how did you feel that that was communicated? You might not have the answers to these questions, but start thinking about it and start talking to your therapist about it. This is amazing insight that you have That because it can take forever, sometimes years for my patients to recognize that correlation that the self-injury means that I'm seen and I'm valid and my pain is visible, right? So... The fact that you already know that is leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of us. But now we just have to figure out, okay, so that's what it gives me. This is like the root of the root. When I talk about uh, nipping in the bud, overcoming our eating disorders, our addiction, our self-injury, I always talk about the root of the root. Like what purpose does this serve, right? It's there for a reason. What is that reason? Your This is your reason. We already know that root we just have to pull it out, we have to figure it out. And we want to replace it with something else, right? Because you don't like it. Obviously, you've said like you start, you know, then you feel bad. It sounds like usually my patients when they self injure, have like this shame spiral or guilt spiral they get into. But then like the anxiety builds, and we do it again. And it's like this never ending shit talk yourself cycle, right? So let's get you out of that. So that you can feel worthy, you can feel valid all day, every day. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but we can get there. We just have to consider some other ways that we can get those same needs met, because that's why the self-injury is still in your life and still active is because it still gives you something you need. Now, we just have to figure out other ways to to get that need met. Do you see what I'm saying? And be curious about it. Again, no judgments. And if you can't come up with any of those answers on your own, no judgments there either. That's when you ask your therapist. Okay. Now, there was a comment that said, as an add-on, I have the same problem, but with a diagnosis. I feel like I'm only valid if I get diagnosed with BPD, because I sometimes feel like I have all these symptoms, although I do not have a personality disorder. This is very harmful to my healing process because it stops me from getting better. How do I accept the fact that I am not, in fact, suffering from a mental illness? This was interesting. And I think a lot of, I've talked about this, I did a video about self-diagnosis and how, I think in some ways it can be validating because having a a term to put to it can validate our experience and give us language around how we feel, but how it can also be detrimental because we can feel like we can use that, not everybody, but some people feel like they can use it as an excuse for how they act, which is not true. Or we can misdiagnose ourselves, right? You know, even though we have some information, we might not have all the information because we didn't go to school for it. And so we could be missing some very important key symptoms. And it could potentially mean it's a completely different diagnosis. So when it comes to needing a diagnosis, I would talk to your therapist. I feel like, again, the same thing. So talking to your therapist about it, finding out maybe what or if any diagnosis also uh by the way bt dubs having a diagnosis isn't the only way we can suffer with a mental illness or mental health issue we can have symptoms of a bunch of different things and doesn't fit in one of those buckets and that doesn't mean that we don't have a right to feel shitty that's not how it works i know your brain might be telling you that but i'm just here to tell you that it's lying that's not the truth and so Again, so that those are my thoughts on that. But then talking to your therapist again and and digging into why would having a diagnosis feel validating? Let's be curious about that. Write about it. Think about it. Is it because are there other ways? So here's a question I have for you. Are there other ways in your life that someone has made you feel or you have just personally felt invalidated because of a lack of a, a label? Like, did you maybe, I'm just going to roll through some very random uh, examples. One could be, like, did I not feel like I was good at soccer because I never made varsity? That's an example of a label making you not feel valid, right? Did I, uh, do I struggle with like imposter syndrome because I didn't get my degree in X, Y, or Z or go to a certain school? Hmm. Do I do that to myself? Maybe, maybe I invalidate myself because I didn't go to that level of schooling. Hmm. Be right, think about how labels have affected your ability to feel confident or valid in your life, and that could give you a lot of information. Again, talking out with your therapist, you'll probably dig into more, but you could also uh, watch my video about self diagnosis. Just get on YouTube, Katie Morton Self Diagnosis, it'll pop up. Um, yeah, because we have to dig into that because it's stopping you from getting better. And I'm, I'm just curious, I want to be curious about it. I know I say that all the time, but it's just the truth. Be curious about it. And I don't, I don't really think you have to accept the fact that you're not suffering from a mental illness, because you're struggling, you're suffering. So maybe it's not the one that you thought, or maybe you don't have a label. But that does not mean, again, that you're not having mental health issues. That just is not the same. Obviously, I mean, if you get into the nitty gritty, which I'm sure your brain has, where you're like, well, I don't have a diagnosable mental illness. Well, what does that mean then? Let's be curious about that. If you had that, what would that say about you? Does that, make your, does that mean that your feelings or your experience is more valid? How so? Why or why not? Um, would you look at me? Then let's look out. Let's say I had the same symptoms as you, but I did not have a diagnosis. Would you think that that I don't have a right to to feel bad or get help? What does that say about me? Hmm. Let's be curious, and let's talk about it in therapy. And the final comment below this question says: "Hi, can emotional abuse cause schizophrenia? No. I was emotionally abused, and I don't have any symptoms of BPD or PTSD, but instead got diagnosed with schizophrenia. Also, I will um, be able to stop going to therapy. Oh, oh. Also, will I be able to stop going to therapy and stop taking meds? I've been on them. F- I've been to at least seven therapists, and just pushed them away. Thanks. This is interesting. Now, in short." Emotional abuse is not directly correlated with schizophrenia. And I even double checked this just because I was curious. However, a lot of times when it comes to things like anything, really, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, we can be genetically predisposed for it. Meaning we like have the gene or set of genes or, you know, we're predisposed to have something. It could even be the same for like heart disease or uh, diabetes, just FYI. But we all have genetic predispositions. Our bodies already come with some kinds of code in them to cause certain things to happen, like blonde hair, right? For example. But we need something to turn them on, meaning like the light switch is off for schizophrenia, but we have that, you know, gene or we have that predisposition. And then we need like a triggering event. Now, not all the time is it a big thing. But for some of us, it is. And the emotional abuse may have been that trigger for you. So inadvertently, it could have flipped that switch because it was distressing and your system didn't know what else to do. So it like turned on that. And I don't obviously everyone's situation is different and I don't want to extrapolate further. But that's really the only way that it could, quote unquote, cause schizophrenia because from what we know in research about schizophrenia if you guys don't know it's an excess of dopamine in the brain is one of the components that they believe causes kind of the hallucinations delusions some of the positive symptoms of schizophrenia meaning adding things into our environment but then there's still some confusion and question around all of the things that are involved obviously because we can't like get into an active brain and see how many chemicals and Uh, parts of the brain are active during that but then there's also the negative symptoms of schizophrenia where we can have like blunted affect or I forget what the word is like waxy something but it's like when our our will like freeze in certain states like our arm can be out and we're like frozen this way um there's a lot of different symptoms depending on how schizophrenia affects you but that's just what I know about like emotional abuse and schizophrenia and the correlation now when it comes to stop going to therapy and stop taking meds medication that'd be a question for your your psychiatrist in my experience now I've I used to work in a hospital I don't know if you guys I've probably told you guys but I used to work in a hospital where we saw a lot of schizophrenic patients and schizoaffective patients and medication is is in many cases not all but in most cases medication is something that is going to be necessary for for a large chunk of time because again if our brain is just overproducing dopamine and some other things that are causing us to see things that aren't there and hear things that aren't there. And it can be very terrifying. Uh, most of my patients with schizophrenia also, you know, are in fight flight until they get properly treated. And then sometimes depression comes along too, because of what that diagnosis with the stigma that it holds and that the way people talk about it, you know, but it's, it's important that we have honest conversations about all mental illnesses and schizophrenics can live wonderful happy healthy lives just fyi um so talk to your doctor about the medication when with the experience that i've had most of my patients actually all of my schizophrenic patients were on medication but it was finding the right one so don't feel like you have to deal with all the side effects of some if it's not working for you there are more and more amazing options i feel like each and every year they're coming out with a new atypical antipsychotic that has that's less i call it like a less dirty drug meaning it has less side effects um so ask your doctor about that. It's okay. Come in with your questions. And you can ask your, your doctor about, you know, when is do you think it's possible for me to titrate down? Maybe titrate off. Talk to them. But do not stop your medication on your own without consulting your physician. Pretty please. With sugar on top. Do not do that. That is very scary. Withdrawal is a real thing. Also, trust me, I've had so many patients in my time, especially my bipolar patients, stop taking their meds and then go into mania and and make decisions that aren't good for them or do things that are dangerous and you know possibly hurt themselves. So please, please, please do not go off without talking to your doctor. But into the, will I ever be able to stop going to therapy? One hundred percent. I've had actually schizophrenic patient that I saw in my private practice stop coming after I think probably a year, because a lot of the stuff was just getting him to a place where he would feel confident. We could uh, work on getting him into, back into school, organizing his life, working on budgets, helping him better understand his mental illness and the symptoms and just basic stuff for him. And then once we worked through that, and then some stuff, you know, uh, the neglect of childhood and things that we all, you know, a lot of us deal with, there was a little bit of that and managing that. And, but then it was fine. So depending on what you feel like you need to work through and that, you know, the emotional abuse you sustained and how, how long it takes for you to process that into a place where you feel okay with it. Once you've done that, you can always stop going to therapy. Therapy is in my, from my perspective, and I know some other professionals might disagree, but I would argue that they just want more money out of their people, but Hey, they can, you know, at me in the comments. Um, the goal of therapy is to not have to need it, right? It's like uh, it's like the goal of cancer treatment is to not have cancer anymore, right? If we have an issue and something that's bothering us, we go in to get help from a professional in the hope that they can help us and we don't need it forever. Now, everyone's going to need it for different amounts of time and there's no clock that's ticking where you have to hurry and fix it, whatever. But hopefully your end goal and your treatment plan with your therapist is to not need it anymore and maybe just need booster sessions every now and again like everybody right we all go in for checkups at our doctor we should all go in for checkups with our therapist and so those are my thoughts okay cool let's move on to question number five says katie and this is uh, your guys's questions i swear there's like themes every week could i have been sexually abused and completely forgotten yes short answer yes a few years ago i found out that we had a high school male live at our house for a few weeks when I was a kid, and I don't remember it at all. That time doesn't exist in my memory at all. I wonder about sexual abuse because I have a very strong aversion to physical intimacy. When I asked my mom about it, her response was to ask if I thought I had been molested by him, but then she brushed it off. What? Okay. The whole situation is weird. I'll eventually bring it up in therapy, but we're working on other stuff right now. That's fair. Sometimes you're like, my dance card's full right now. We'll put this in on the next one. Um, and the short answer is yes. So back to what I was talking about, uh, previously when I recently filmed with my friend, Alexa Altman, who's a psych- psychologist and trauma specialist, she was talking about memories. Cause when I was doing research for my book, traumatized, that will come out this September. I was doing a lot about memory and how memories are formed and how they aren't really sure where trauma memories are stored or if they're stored at all. Now, there's a ton. Obviously, you'll see in the book. I, I use inside out obviously to describe it because love that film. But when we are dissociated, or an extreme o- sense of overwhelm, right? Not all of us actually dissociate and pull the report. Some of us like max out and we're our brain is not able to, what I'm getting at is in certain states of mind, we are not able to form memories. We've talked about this, right? That's why dissociative episodes can leave these huge blocks where we're like, I don't know what happened. You know, I'm not sure what happened for that year or during that experience. That's honestly why, or one of the reasons why uh, people at crime scenes are horrible at telling the police or whoever's, you know, like the detectives, what happened? They are, they're like overwhelmed. They're in their stress response. They're, frontal prefrontal cortex and their thinking brain is like out the door and they're like I don't know maybe it's a blue car a red car I'm not, I'm not really sure we're overwhelmed and we maybe don't have that memory it's very possible or it might come back later when we come out of our stress response right but I just want you to know that yes you could have been sexually abused and completely forgotten I also find your mother's response very suspicious and also hurtful that she brushed it off that would I mean I don't have children, but I would assume I'd be like mama bear about this. I'd be like, what? Tell me, let's find him, punch him in the nuts. Come on now, let's take him down. That would be my, but yes, in short, you can completely forget. And it may, the memory may not be there or it may have, you know, been, it might be repressed and something that when you bring it up in therapy, you might be able to work it through and I also, uh, I think I saw in the comments, but I've mentioned this before too, because you did talk to your mom, but talking to other people who maybe knew, and I know the person who asked this question said that they did and nobody really had much to say, but that's another way. If you were in a similar situation, you can talk to other people from that time period. Like in this case, it'd be like mom, dad, you know, brother, sister, whoever lived with this person as well and ask them about it because sometimes especially siblings will remember different things cuz we're often at different developmental levels and you know have different experiences even though we live in the same house it's completely different and so Asking them can sometimes shed some light on that as well. Now, there was a comment after this. that said, as an add-on, how do therapists handle, therapists handle such situations? How do they treat their clients differently if, for example, fear of intimacy, nightmares, panic attacks, fear of all men, which could all be signs of past abuse, occur but not due to sexual assault? How much does the reason behind all of these symptoms play a role in treatment? The reason behind actually plays a somewhat important role because it's going to tell us maybe what style of therapy we should offer like is this trauma based or not right it could be if it's anxiety based maybe more cbt meaning cognitive behavioral therapy so the reason behind it will usually dictate with some respect obviously certain therapists prefer certain types of therapy like i do a lot of cbt dbt that's just what i prefer so that will usually when a therapist is doing an intake on a patient meaning seeing a patient for the first time looking at their paperwork we're already trying to decide what kind of therapeutic tools or techniques would be best for this patient like best serving for them right so if the the reason behind these fear of intimacy or uh, fear of all men or all of that stuff is you know sexual abuse sexual assault based then I'm going to look for more PTSD type resources and tools but again like I said if it's more maybe social anxiety or confidence based I might focus more on like CBT or kind of what we call like behavioral modifications which will do a lot of like self-talk and A lot of these things overlap but i'm just telling you that that is usually how we kind of break it down and so it is somewhat important but i do not believe that we have to know the reason behind all of them to get any good work done or to have any alleviation of symptoms because a lot of the tools and techniques that we use can help out for a lot of different things cool okay Then another question says, if you have time to cover this, oh, I do, says, do you have any advice for those of us who need to ask our families questions to help fill in the gaps of our memories or provide details? When I was six, I was sexually abused by a tenant of my mom who lived in our duplex. And I want to finalize a trauma timeline to help me finally process through things. However, I've been afraid to ask my mom or much older sister, nine year age gap between us, any of the questions that I have, and I don't know how to broach the subject. Thanks for taking the time to answer our questions, of course. Honestly, my best advice for things like this, because oh, some things are just so uncomfortable, right? It's like ugh, just even the thought of it, like, ugh, I don't want to do it. We need to. And you probably knew this is coming now that I've started it that way. Figure out what it is we want to say. Break it into a couple bullet points. Let's keep this short and sweet. Maybe three to five things, right? Then I want you to practice saying it out loud, then we can even role play. Okay, if I'm going to say that, what do I think my mom will say? What will my sister say? I'm going to be real here. Usually, what we think they're going to say and do, if we know them well, is usually pretty correct, meaning that they will usually respond well, unless they're kind of abusive or not that supportive. Then they might be a little bit different, right? But usually I find family will listen to us and answer as best they can or be like, Oh, my God, I didn't know. Oh, and then try to, you know, what can I think about it and get back to you? I didn't even think, you know, it might be something like that might need to give them a little bit of time to, to digest if they didn't know to digest what happened to us, and then come back around. Because again, that can be like, it sounds silly, but even from us to tell them can send them into their stress response and they might not be able to put their words together or figure out how to respond. And so it might be good for us to be able to give them a little time and say, "Well, can you get back to me in the next couple of weeks because I'm trying to figure this out in therapy, you know?" But again, writing it down, putting our thoughts together ahead of time will 100% help. Role play, you know, uh p- keeping it to the bullet points. And people in our family tend to want to know how they can help. And so I think the best way to end with the, how they can help in this case would be something to the effect of if you can just remember anything that would be really really helpful that's really what I'm just trying to get here is so I can finish this out and they should be able to do that as you know if they have any memories of it they'll let you know but give yourself some time and compassion it's really uncomfortable it's a very touchy subject for you so we want to make sure it's addressed properly you know keep all that under consideration and you should be good to go but just practice ahead of time Let's move on to question number six. And that question says, Hi, Katie. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Uh, Says, I'm a 27-year-old female and have been really struggling with deciding whether I want to have children or not. I understand. I'm definitely leaning toward the no decision. Have lots of reasons against having them. A lot of the reasons are due to negative experiences in childhood and family. I have a lot of patients that felt that way. And the desire for history to not and the desire for history to not repeat itself and pass on on transgenerational trauma to another human that didn't ask to be born. I think raising kids is one of the greatest responsibilities of humanity. I couldn't agree more. And I just don't think I'm cut out for it. But I also don't think I want it either. However, I'm naturally a very anxious person. So I'm trying to figure out if beneath those deep rooted anxieties, I actually do want them or not. In addition, I've never felt that maternal drive to be a mother to another human. I felt it for being a dog mom, though. I am into that. Also, I feel pressure from my boyfriend because I know he really wants kids. That's something that you really should talk about before you fully commit to one another, even if you're already committed. You know what I'm saying? I want to be with him. But if it is the case that we don't want the same thing, I won't deny him the chance to find someone else. Yet I still fear the outcome that will have to go separate ways which is making it difficult for me to discuss my thoughts with him I guess the question is how do we figure out what we really want separate from our anxieties kindest regards this is a great question and if I'm being honest I went through a similar experience myself like even trying to figure out if I want a because as most of you know Sean and I do not want children and I'm that wasn't a decision that we took lightly but it was one that we made over time and conversation and i i really you have to be on the same page with your partner because that's a huge life decision and that's one that i honestly feel like either one giving in to the other's needs is going to be a they, you know there could be future resentment we'd want you'd want to talk it out anyways you might want to go to therapy together have multiple conversations and I will encourage you to discuss this with him and let him know your thoughts I know you're worried that it might be upsetting to him or that you'll go your separate ways but I really feel like if you can't have this real conversation with him about whether or not you want to have children that honestly and I mean this in the most loving way this is tough love Katie okay if you can't talk to him about this, how do you expect to have children with him or not have children or spend a life with him? Life is full of ups and downs, uh, difficult things, uh, death of family members, losing uh, animals and difficult moves and stressful situations and fights with other people and fights with each other. And there's just so much to life. And I know that sounds really deep and dark and horrible, because it's also filled with wonderful and amazing things. But I'm just saying that I don't think there's a better indicator of a healthy relationship more than the ability to communicate with each other about difficult things. Because like I said, life is difficult and so many things are complicated and you have to be able to talk to your partner or your, um, you know, your foxhole partner is kind of what I I think of Sean as. And who do you want in your foxhole? You want someone who's going to be there for you and be able to hear you and also it's it's healthy to be able to disagree now I know in this case the disagreement could push you away from each other but I don't know you have to talk about it you have to figure it out I don't want to put too much of my own thoughts into it because obviously Sean and I decided to not have children so I understand and and I obviously like agree with your thoughts about this in a lot of ways so and having a child yeah it's such a such an amazing thing. And it's a great responsibility. And not all of us are equipped to do it. So yeah, those are my thoughts. I think, and let me make sure I answered your question, because I definitely went on a tangent. My question is, how do we figure out what we really want separate from our anxieties? I think when it comes to this, if you can put on, it might be like a journal again, sorry, J-bomb, might be a journaling like a homework assignment I guess because I think it could be helpful for you to write down the things that are because of like the transgenerational trauma and not feeling like you're personally equipped and let's write those things down and then the anxieties if we can tease those out because I think the anxieties are more worry based like I don't know if I will make a good mother I don't think anybody feels like they will by the way And everybody has those worries. Um, I don't know how I'll deal with being pregnant or even birthing a child. Or what if something goes wrong? Or what if my child is sick? Or like, then those are anxieties. And so I want you to separate out because every, first of all, if you didn't have the anxieties before you get pregnant, at least in my experience with my pregnant friends, those anxieties will come back right away. When you're pregnant, you think of all the things. Like I can't tell you how many of my friends are like, oh my God, Like what if the baby... Uh, grows to be too big or like what if I have to have emergency c-section or what if what if what if all the way down to like you know what if they have a genetic condition and what eh, there's so many worries it's just part of unfortunately part of creating a human in your body which is amazing and beautiful and whatever but also super stressful and we can have a lot of worries so every time you want to write something in one of those lists think is this a worry thought or is this something that I believe in Now, I know that might be difficult, but take your time with it and feel free to move things back and forth. You might want to do this on a computer or have multiple sheets of paper that you can run through because it could take a minute. Now, that's really the best way. I think talking it out with your partner is key and taking time on your list, deciding whether it is what you want or an anxiety thing, because yeah, unfortunately, in our, in our society, we're kind of told that, like, the rules of life are, you know, you go to school, get a job, get married, have kids. And that's just not it for a lot of us. And I think that, unfortunately, we can get caught up in that and feel like, well, that's what we should do, you know, and, um, and so it can take a little minute to tease that out. And I don't know why. Does anybody else agree with this? I don't know why it seems to be so hard to like not have children when I feel like it should be I mean, not for everybody. I'm not speaking. I know a lot of people are struggling with infertility. I'm just saying that, like, it seems like going against the grain to not have a child. And I just feel like that should not be the norm. We should be free to choose whatever we want. And having a child and making that commitment is a huge responsibility and an amazing responsibility. But nonetheless, I feel like we shouldn't be encouraging everyone to because not everybody wants that. Anyway, I could talk about this forever. But I hope that that helps at least a little bit so you can kind of tease that out. Now, let's move on to question number seven, and that is, hey, Katie, is it possible to get to the point that the things we struggle with to go away completely? I feel like I have been working on ways to deal with my depression, anxiety, and low self-worth for years, yet they always pop back up again. Is it possible for them to go away altogether? I love this question, and I get some version of this, I feel like, every couple of months. Now, the truth about depression, anxiety, low self-worth, or any mental health issue, really, is that it's just like a common cold. Sure, we can get rid of it, and it'll go away for huge swaths of time. You might even have a whole year where they, like, just don't bother you. But then, when things get stressful, when we start to feel overwhelmed, they can bubble up. We can have these thoughts again. Oh, shit, they're back, right? We can feel that way, and it can be super frustrating. We can think, I am back at square one. Okay, I'm here to tell you, you are not back at square one. This is just, like... It's like a weakness in our system. It's like the same reason that when I get sick, I get strep throat as a kid. That was just like I always cut strep throat until I had my tonsils out at the, like the ripe age of like twenty. Yeah, it's horrible. But we all have like weaknesses in our body and in our brain. So some of us will go back to anxiety. Some of us will go back to more depressive thoughts or eating disorder behaviors. However. The difference is that instead of it being like a Mack truck coming into our life and smashing us down and us not having any tools and resources or even understanding of what it is, right? We have resources, we have tools, we have ways to deal with it, and we can cope. So it won't run us over. We'll just be like, oh, it's back again for a little bit. That must mean I'm a little worn down, right? We'll know what it is, that it's a red flag. It's an indicator of us not taking care of our basic needs. And so we maybe have to put more effort into that. I know that was a really long-winded answer, but hopefully that was helpful. Because yes, they go away for chunks of time, but just like anything, if we don't take care of ourselves, they can come back. Those are those weaknesses. That's the strep throat for you, unfortunately. We all have them. I'm here to tell you we all have them. Some of us are just more aware. So when they come back, I would encourage you to change that conversation you have with yourself about them, where you're like, oh shit, this is their back and I'm doing terrible. I must not be doing all the things I'm supposed to. No. Let's instead say it is possible that I'm just having like a stressful period and I, and I haven't actually been sleeping as well. Maybe that's why they're back. Okay, well, I got to get back into my homework. I got to call my therapist or whatever. We have the tools. We've already done it once. We can do it again. It's just like back when I had tonsils and used to get strep throat a lot, I knew exactly I'd go to the doctor. I'd be like, I have strep throat and they do the test. I'm like, yep, I told you I need to get, I forget the name even now, the antibiotic, but I'd be like, I need that and blah, 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 because that, that one doesn't work. We know, we already know because we've been here before and you can use that to your advantage. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. It says, hi Katie, I hope you're having a great day. I am so far, thanks for asking. I hope you are too. It says, I have a question about hypervigilance and extreme self-awareness. Whenever I leave my house and even leaving my room, if my family is home, I am incredibly aware of the fact that people can see me and judge what I am doing, how I look and so on. Consciously or unconsciously, I always feel on edge and at home it's like I'm walking on eggshells so that no one will notice me. Even though I know it's unlikely, it feels like someone is watching me all the time and taking notes of my every movement. Wow, that sounds really stressful. Even being alone at home or in the car, I sometimes get a thought that someone's watching me through the windows and I get extremely uncomfortable and feel like I want to hide. The only place I feel safe and can relax is in my room with the doors and blinds closed. I've never had any big trauma or event that has made me feel unsafe, really. So I don't understand why I am this way. Why do I feel like this? And how can I stop being so afraid of people seeing me and judging me? Honestly, this sounds a little bit like agoraphobia, which I have a video about if you want to check it out. Just uh, get on YouTube, Katie Morton, agoraphobia. It's A-G-O-R should come up. Um, that's just to start it off. That's not, obviously not the full word. Um, but uh, essentially what agoraphobia is, is... The fear of being out in public and that getting out of that situation would cause you some kind of embarrassment. Now that's not maybe not quite in line with yours because you're just like, I don't want people painted. it. I don't even want people seeing me like being seen is overwhelming, but it sounds a little, it's an anxiety disorder somewhere in that umbrella, definitely. And agoraphobia sounds somewhat similar because a lot of people will end up not leaving their house or their bedroom um, much at all because it's just safer and feels better and not so stressful. And so there's a couple of things. So those are kind of my thoughts about like what this is. And I think that that might, you know, that's potentially what it is, or at least in that vein. And I I, I don't know the cause because I guess I don't have enough information as I look through this question. I'm not really sure where it comes from. It could be anything from just... Untreated anxiety that has gotten worse, especially in this last year. A lot of ang- people with anxiety has gotten worse. Some of my socially anxious people are like, Yay, things are amazing. I don't have to go out. But now that things are opening up, it's worse. So, could be, you know, exacerbated by the uh, COVID situation. But Anyways, I think that it is definitely coming from anxiety and the best way to cope and the best way to overcome this is actually exposure therapy. And I, one of my first, like my homework assignment for you now, if you're not in therapy already is to, before you get into therapy, to consider maybe write about what comes up for you. What thoughts pop into your head or beliefs do you have about people seeing you and noticing you? What does it mean to be noticed? What, what, is, what do you tell yourself? What, what's, you know, what is it that's so terrible that makes you not want to be seen or noticed? It sounds like you wish you could have like a cloak of invisibility, like in Harry Potter, because the judgment, the fear of judgment, and that's why I think it's kind of agoraphobia where it's like, they feel, think people are going to judge them or they'll be embarrassed. Um, but, you know, and then I'd be even curious about that. Like, are there situations in your life where you felt really judged? And what were those, you know, Can you explain those to me? What was that like? When did that happen? Who was involved? I'd have a lot of questions like that. Because it has a purpose. There's a reason for this. I know you might feel like I'm going crazy. Why is this happening? But we all have ways to cope. And this is the way that you're coping. And we just have to try to track back like why it's happening when it's happening. I'd even be curious. I love a timeline. So I'd be like, well, when did this start? And when did it get this bad? And like, when was it? You know, when did your house become unsafe? Because usually it's like this circle and it slowly gets smaller. Anxiety disorders make our world slowly and slowly smaller and smaller, which is why exposure therapy is the best way for you to bust out of this and make your world bigger and bigger and bigger so you can do whatever you want to do. But yeah, those are my thoughts on that. I think this hypervigilance, extreme self-awareness, it could have a trauma, you know, a trauma basing. I don't know. Again, I don't know what happened, but it doesn't always. It could be, again, just something that you're genetically predisposed for, like OCD or anxiety, and then something in your life kind of triggered this, or a lot of people in your life exhibit similar symptoms. and But a lot of it's like, honestly, toxic thought, where the way that we think about our environment and the people in it isn't helpful, and it's actually, you know, going against us and keeping us held in our room and all of that stuff. So anyways... Hopefully that helps at least give you some questions to answer some guidance. Please see a therapist that specializes in anxiety and does exposure therapy. Um, Make sure that they actually know how to do exposure therapy, which I know sounds silly, but, you know, ask them like how often they see people and do exposure therapy or, you know, where they got their training. Those are all questions you can and should ask because exposure therapy needs to be done by someone who's properly trained and knows what they're doing so that we make sure we don't make this worse. We want to make it better, not worse. So anyway oh, it says, sorry, now I see you're probably like screaming at the other on the other side, but I've never had any big trauma or event that made me feel unsafe. So I think it is probably just more of the anxiety disorder stuff. So it's not coming out of that. It's coming out of I I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if we tracked back years ago, that timeline will actually be really helpful then because it may have started out as like anxiety in front of people or anxiety of going to class and having to give a speech or whatever I'd be interested where this came from when you first remember this starting and how has it grown to where it is today let's be curious about that no judgments just report the facts you know and then again what does it feel like to be seen and what does that mean and all of that stuff but hopefully that helps give you some information and keep us posted okay Now let's move on to question number nine and that question says, hi, Katie, why do some people feel offended when you tell them to go to therapy? It's like they are feeling, uh, it's like they feel we're underestimating their pain by offering solutions. Not everybody wants solutions, but I'll get into that. I personally feel suffocated if I think that what I'm going through is extremely horrible and nobody can help me, but it's um, like those people enjoy or feel safe by thinking this way. I don't actually think that that's what's going on. Now, there's a couple of things. First of all, I have a video that says you're not listening and I would encourage you to watch that video because there are there's only one real way that we can listen to others so that the conversation and communication is healthy and happy and that is listening to learn when we listen to someone to learn about their experience and we're not putting any of our own shit into it now I know you're like Katie therapy is life-changing you don't have to tell me it's like preaching to the choir. However. You can't make people get better or want to go to therapy. And by telling someone, by trying to quote unquote fix someone's problem, sometimes it can A, feel too forceful and they're like, I didn't ask you to fix this. Or two, it can feel invalidating, which I know you're like, what, why would that be invalidating? I'm saying like, hey, you should get some help. That sounds pretty bad. It can feel like you're saying hey, all you got to do is just go to therapy, like stop talking to me about it. It can be very dismissive and people can feel like they're not really heard. Does that make sense? And that's why listening to learn is really key. Asking questions about their experience and asking what they're going through. And then what you can do instead of telling them to go to therapy is by saying, man, I'm so sorry you're going through that. That sounds really tough. And then, you know, you validate, validate, maybe they have some more stuff to say. At which point then it's okay to say, you know, what's really helped me is therapy. I don't know if you've ever considered it, but you know, I'm not here to tell you what to do. Again, we cannot, it's all in the presentation, and all in the way we mention it, because not everyone's going to take that comment well, because there's that feeling like you're trying to fix their problem. You can feel like, it can feel like you're downplaying or dismissing their issue or like, I don't want, I don't have time to listen to all this like, geez. Or the third is different generations of people and different Areas of the world have different thoughts about therapy. And like if I was to tell my dad, okay, I know my dad's, he's been um, dead for God, what, 11 years, 12 years now? So actually, yeah, 12, almost 13 years. So, anyways. My dad has been passed away for a long time. But back in the day, when I told my mom to be a therapist, he's like, who wants to go to a stranger and cry? Because he'd gone with, I don't know if you guys know, but when I was younger, we all went to family therapy. My brother and dad hated it. My mom and I loved it. We continued on our own. It was amazing, super helpful for me. But my dad did not like crying in front of a stranger and didn't want to pay somebody to listen to him. So he had this like stigma or belief system he had created around what therapy was and what it wasn't. And so if I had told my father... (laughs) You know, dad, I think you should, you should go to therapy, he would be offended. And so some people can still have that belief system and can still be offended, because they think that like, what do you think I'm crazy? You think I need to pay somebody to talk, you know, all of the stuff that we hear all the time. It's really, to be honest, between us. It's really ignorance, right? My dad didn't understand therapy, he didn't know what it could do for him and how it could help. But the thought that something could be wrong, quote unquote, wrong with him was like triggering, right and it sent him into a defensive spiral and so people can get that way and hopefully that just gives you some ideas of why people can feel that way because not everybody wants to be you know all the reasons I said and that's why people get offended and might shut down or or not talk to you about certain things you know at that point okay our final question are you ready moving on to question number 10 says hey Katie how can you get yourself to a place to be comfortable going to a therapist?" I feel most comfortable talking to someone I know versus someone that I don't. And obviously that isn't allowed in therapy for very healthy reasons. Just having a hard time getting myself to a place to seek help though. I know I need to, this is a great question. And I wanted to add this one in because earlier we talked about getting comfortable in therapy and this person's one step back from that where they're like, how do I even get comfortable going to see a therapist? Well, I'm going to be honest it's always uncomfortable and stressful and the first sessions are weird and you know filling out the paperwork and then waiting in the waiting room flipping the light on you're like and to be honest with you uh, that was the one silver lining well maybe I'm sure there's more but the one that That I saw all the time. The one benefit of this COVID situation was the accessibility of online therapy. Now, I know for a lot of people are like, "Well, I'd prefer it in person." Well, pick somebody who's in your area from the get on online therapy. Whether you're trying BetterHelp or Talkspace, I think I still link out to BetterHelp in all my descriptions. You can probably check it out and click through there. But that makes it easier. We don't have to drive somewhere. We don't have to call someone. We don't have to try to leave voicemails and make appointments and blah, blah, blah. We can just go in the app and check some of the boxes of things we want to work on and be paired with someone. And if we don't like that person, we can just in the app be like, set me up with someone else. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. I know you're still nervous leading up to it, but I think that removes what, what I've always considered to be a lot of the deterrence, which is like, crazy high cost like in la uh my therapist cost 185 dollars an hour and that was not the most expensive one of my best friends joanna pays 225 It's crazy you guys you get broke just trying to get better right so i never raise my prices which is probably you know not the best businesswoman but uh, enough okay anyway so crazy high prices, hard to get there through traffic and parking and set aside all that time. And then, you know, in the waiting room and all the nervousness of that, we take that away. And so I think that might be a good place to start in a way to kind of ease in and know that you can like, you know, switch out if you don't like someone and all of that stuff. And so that would be my first tip. My second tip is you can sometimes play things out. That's a, a cognitive behavioral tool, but they call it playing it out. Or play it to the end, some people call it that. And it's essentially like, okay, let's walk through this. You can even put it in a timeline. Okay, so what would I have to do if I wanted to see a therapist? The end goal being therapist. And I want you to walk me through three scenarios. One, what's the best case situation? What would that look like? I want you to journal about this. What's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario so like oh everything that could ever go wrong goes wrong like you go to the wrong office and you're really late and you don't like them and then i don't know anything you don't like no parking or their office is cramped or hot or i don't know anything like that and third what's the most likely scenario We can all play this out. We all know. We've thought about things. We've experienced life. We know what worst case, best case, and what's most likely going to happen. There's going to be a couple hiccups, but it's going to be okay, right? We know that. But sometimes we have to remind ourselves. We have to do this exercise of walking it through little by little by little in detail, step by step by step. For each of these, if you could write it out, that's even better. But even just thinking it out is helpful. And so do that. And that can help kind of ease the anxieties of going to see a therapist and also in my final tip is sometimes it helps to have a support that assists like for instance i personally have called a a two or three therapists for one of my friends this is back in college days i called and left a message and pretended i was her because she was having a tough time now she was sitting next to me it was all she was approved of i was saying the things she wanted me to say but she just could not make a call she did not want to put call on the phone did not does not like making leaving voicemails or anything and i was like i can do it and so if you have some supportive people that can help you out, help you set up a profile, if it's online or call and see if they take your insurance, ask all the questions, or, you know, maybe even help you go, like go with you to the first one and wait in the waiting room. I I don't can't imagine any therapist having a problem with that. I've even had a lot of people like their mom comes with them even if they're over 18 obviously you guys know I see mainly adults um or you know a grandma or a friend or whatever they just sit in the waiting room what's it matter I got people magazine and they can read and have a good time so there can be all of those are all the ways that I think can kind of best make you feel comfortable but just know everybody feels uncomfortable it's stressful at the beginning it's all it's like that hurdle and then it's easy then you're like I don't know why I waited so long or at least that's how like I've always felt as you guys know, I take breaks in therapy and every time I go back, it takes me a little while. I know I need to go back. And I'm like, ugh. and right now I'm in a new state. So I'm like, oh, I have to find a new therapist. Uh, and it'll probably take me a little while. I'm going to show myself a little compassion, but I'm going to do it and I'll feel better when it's done. And so, yeah, you'll get there. It'll be okay. Just walk me through those scenarios in as much detail as possible. Play it out because you'll find out it's actually not as scary or overwhelming as you think it's going to be it's going to be helpful. It's going to be great. I just, I just know it. I can feel it. Okay. That's all we have for this week. Thank you all so much for your patience. I know we went dark last week, but we had no furniture, you guys. It was crazy. Um, So thank you for understanding. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Please tell a friend, share it with someone you love. Have a wonderful week. Take care of yourselves and I will see you next time. Than questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Kate.